Okay, well, I was just told to say that on behalf of the elders, they are thankful, they love you all, and are privileged to serve you. And I know that's true because that's the way they speak all the time in elders meeting. Um, I always feel like um, our pastoral students and I, and I feel like we're, uh, these men are like big B-52 bombers. You know, they fly around their big planes and they're, they're mature and they're strong and they've been around ministry for so long. And then the pastoral students and I are like little Cessnas, little planes, you know, and we fly around and buzz around a little bit. But it is a privilege to learn from these guys and to be mentored by them. And that's a beautiful thing that we have them to do such a thing with. Well, I hope you, uh, if you have your Bibles, let's grab them, and, uh, and I hope you do have your copy of God's Word. And we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this evening. Second, let me pray quickly. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you so much for the privilege of coming before your Word now. We long for this. We are hungry for your Word. And so we ask that you would speak to us clearly, um, prophetically through this text, powerfully, that your word would, would be, be pressed upon our hearts and that we would be changed. That's why we come here, not, not just to feed ourselves because it's our duty. We come here because we want to be changed by the living and active word of God. So do that work. That's going to require your power and your strength. So, Lord, humble me and make, let, let me make much of Jesus tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, yesterday was the Breeders' Cup. I don't know if anybody likes horse racing. But the Breeders' Cup, it always fascinates me that these horses, uh, they get in the gate. You've seen that? And they, they roll that gate out. And literally, almost as soon as they get in that gate, the gate drops and they go charging out. Well, that's what it's going to feel like, this sermon at the beginning. And so I want you to be ready for that. That's what, it's going to, that's what it's going to be like. That's where we're going. It's going to be fast right out of the start. And I want to get right to work in the text. So we're going to go to 2 Corinthians 5, and I want to read 14 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. This is what the Word of God says to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For the love of Christ controls us. Since we have concluded this, that Christ died for all, Therefore, all have died, and he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. So then, from now on, we acknowledge no one from an outward human point of view, even though we have known Christ from such a human point of view. Now we do not know him in that way any longer. So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look. What is new has come. And all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses against them. And he, was, and he has given us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making his plea through us, we plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. And I have a one point sermon tonight, a one point sermon, and it's this. The gospel saves us from self to God for other people. The gospel saves us 
from self to God for other people. Now, before we get to that point, I want to clear some things up because as you read this text, there may be a couple of phrases that are confusing to you. For example, what does it mean when the text says that the love of Christ controls us? What is the love of Christ? Is this my love, the love that I have for Christ is controlling me, or is this Christ's love for me that is controlling me? Again, what does it mean when it says Christ died for all, and especially the phrase, therefore, all have died? That's a strange statement. All have died. Here we are. We're sitting here. So what does it mean we've died? So I want to clear these things up from the very beginning. Now, to clear it up, I want to look at the text with you so you can see exactly how Paul is arguing in 2 Corinthians 5. So look at your copy of God's Word, and I want to help you with this. This is what Paul is saying. In verse 14, he says, the love of Christ controls us. Why? Why does the love of Christ control, control us? 14b, it controls us because we have come to a conclusion. The conclusion is, namely, that Christ died for all. And the fact that Jesus died for all, the end of verse 14, means that all have died. So why did he die for all, verse 15? He died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Now, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. It's clear. Paul, when Paul says that Christ died for all, therefore all have died, what he means is that when Jesus died, you died. What he means is that when you put your faith in Christ, when, when you trusted in Jesus, when Jesus died, you died with him. That is, the old man is dead. The old man is gone. Jonathan, the old man, is dead. And the new Jonathan is here. That, that, that is what Paul is saying. Among other things, he's teaching this in Romans chapter 6. In Romans 6, Paul says, How can we who have died still live in sin if we've died to sin? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism, he says, into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. We were buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11, he says, This is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. And then in our text tonight, in verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Now, this is the message of the gospel. Second issue that I want to clear up is this phrase, the love of Christ. Is this my love for Christ that's controlling me or Christ's love for me that's controlling me? Now, there is a subtle temptation here to reverse the logic of Paul's argument. See, the Paul statement, this, look at the text. This, the text does not say, the text does not say, my love for Christ controls me. Since I know that he died for me, and since I know this, therefore, on the basis of that, I will live for him. That's not what the text says. The text does not say that. Now, that may be true. In and of itself, that is a true statement. That's a good statement. That's a helpful statement. It's a fair thing to say, I love Jesus because he died for me. 
That's a fine thing to say. That's a good thing for us to say. But that is not the logic of Paul's argument. He's not saying that. Paul is not saying that his love for Jesus compels him to live for God. It's not what he's saying. He's actually arguing the exact opposite. What Paul is saying, look back at the text again. He is saying, Christ's love for me controls me. And the way that I know that he loves me is that he died for me. Therefore, on the basis of his love for me, I will live in him. I will live for him. So here's the question. Is, my love for, is it my love for Christ that fuels me ultimately for service to God? Or is it Christ's love for me that fuels my desire to serve God? Now, those of you here who are of a more tenacious sort may say, well, look, Jonathan, that's, that's raising uh, sort of a false dichotomy, right? I mean, isn't it really an issue of both and? Isn't this an issue of my love for Christ controls me to serve Jesus and Jesus' love for me controls me? So really, this isn't an either or. Shouldn't this be a both and? Well, in a limited sense, I would agree with that assessment. But even a cursory look at Scripture reveals something different to us. For, for example, the Apostle John says, what does he say in First John? We love because... He first loved us. So at least we can say at least this much that there's an ontological priority of the love of Christ. His love comes first. Our love comes second. But even if it is a both and issue in scripture, certainly that conclusion can't be argued from this text. Because in this text, Paul has in mind not our love for Christ but Christ's love for us, as the context clearly demonstrates. So the compelling, the controlling, the, the guiding factor is the love of Christ manifested for us in the gospel. Paul is saying that it is this love that frees me from a life lived to self so that I am enabled to live for God. In other words, the power to live for God does not fundamentally come from me. But from him, the motivation to live my life for God does not fundamentally come from me or my love for Jesus. But, but what fuels my desire to live for God and serve him isn't finally my love, but the love of Christ for me. So that's Paul's point. All right. That's the main thesis is this Christ's love controls us so that we will no longer live for ourselves but for him who died for us. Now, I want to double click on that phrase. Christ's love controls us so that we will no longer live for ourselves, but for him. That's the point. It's the point of the text. And so it's the point of my sermon. So tonight, that one point outline, the gospel saves us from self to God for other people. That's where we're going. So let me clarify uh, the fact that where, where the rest of this message is going. I want us to ask the question tonight that the text itself is seeking to answer. Namely, what motivates us to live for God and other people? What controls us? What drives us ultimately? We've already said that it's not fundamentally our love for Christ. So then what is it? If it's the love of Christ, how does this work its way itself out? 
What is it that controls us? Is it just sheer obedience to Jesus that controls us? Is it just duty and responsibility that control us? What compels you to live for Him and not yourself? Now, I could come here tonight and I could say to you, if you're living for yourself and you've been living for yourself, I could look at you and I could say to you, I could say, stop it. Just don't do it. Stop living for yourself. Then I could even press it further upon your conscience and I could say, what's wrong with you? Don't you love Jesus? Don't you care about Jesus? Don't you know that He died for you? Let's go. Come on. Let's get off our rear ends and let's do something for Jesus. I could talk that way. I could preach that way. And there is a lot of preaching that way. And it will motivate people to a degree and for a season. And that might work for a while. But it's just guilt-based motivation. And at the end of the day, it's deadly. It's deadly. It's a hurricane of condemnation and guilt. And it destroys everything in its path. And that's not where I'm going tonight because it's not where Paul's going. And it's not where Jesus and His love would have us go. So what I am addressing in this text tonight is the issue, namely, what compels us or controls us to live for God. But in order to answer that question, we have to address some faulty or improper motivations for living for God. Specifically, there's two that I want to point out with you. Uh, The first is what I want to call a guilt-driven motivation. And the second is what I want to call a debt-driven motivation. But unless we address these unhelpful motivations um, and learn to operate under a different motif, people, we will struggle to serve God with delight, with gladness, with joy. We will. We'll struggle. The gospel saves us from self. And, And one of the implications of the fact that the gospel saves us from self is this, is that believers are freed from the oppressive tyranny of what used to motivate us. We're freed from that. Let's start with guilt. Look, people don't pack up and go to Pakistan. They don't. They don't pack up and go to Pakistan and live there under intense persecution and suffering, ultimately to be murdered and martyred by radical Muslims, all because they are motivated by guilt. That's not why people go to the mission field. If guilt was the ultimate motivation for foreign missions, then where are all the missionaries? Where where are they? Because there's plenty of guilt-driven preaching being used as a motivation for missions, and yet a generation of us stays home. So just statistically, we can see that this does not work. It, It has not worked. It does not work because it leaves people feeling defeated, ashamed, exhausted, ministry drained, discouraged, hopeless, and don't miss this one, radically introspective. Because the conclusion they draw from a motivation of guilt is, well, I, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just not worthy enough. I'm not worthy enough to go to the mission field. And so someone will say, well, see, R.F. Khan is worthy. He's worthy because he's more godly than I am. But I'm not worthy. I'm just a pew sitter. I come to church. You know, I, I do this week in and week out, and I'm trying my best to serve Jesus, Pastor Rich's message this morning, but I feel, I, I just, I feel like a worm. I'm just a worm. Look, there's something out of kilter 
about this worm mentality. I've been thinking about this. Fundamentally, it's to me, it seems to be a misunderstanding of humility. Now, let me be clear. We are sinful. We are disgraceful. We are woefully undone. Let let me be clear about that. But friends, that is not all we are. In fact, that is not even fundamentally who we are anymore. We are new in Christ. We are new creations. In fact, I question the use even in the phraseology. We're just worms. I do. I question that. I question the helpfulness of using that type of language to classify redeemed, forgiven, justified children of God, made in the image of God, and being conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, I know it's well-meaning, but there may be something telling about our understanding of the gospel when our default position is to talk about ourselves as worms. Well, whether we talk like this or not, Presumably, self-deprecation isn't a helpful motivation for serving God. Humility is, but not self-deprecation. This self-loathing, it leads to feelings of guilt and it's paralyzing. Do feelings of guilt and condemnation ever successfully motivate us to lay down our lives for Jesus Christ? Friends, this is not the intent of the gospel. Self-loathing leading to, in many cases, feelings of condemnation and guilt are not proper motivations for the believer. They're not. There's a marked difference between being aware of your sin on the one hand and on the other hand, living under the paralysis of condemnation. I I just preached on Romans chapter 8, 1 through 4, a couple of weeks ago. And in that text, we see that we have been set free from our slavery to sin. And therefore, we are now no longer under condemnation. We've been set free. And then in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, it is for freedom that we have been set free. It's for freedom. The end is freedom that we have been set free. So the gospel frees us. But condemnation enslaves us. Moreover, guilt-driven Mentality, this guilt-driven sort of mentality is burdensome. Uh, we can liken it to, think of Pilgrim's Progress, this great story. And we can liken it to Christian. Basically, his burden is lifted off, but then he goes and he picks it back up again, puts it back on his shoulder, and lugs it around for the rest of his Christian, Christian life. That, that's what it's like to, to carry guilt and condemnation into your, your life with Christ. And that's not what the gospel intends for us. In fact, it just kills your desire and motivation to serve Jesus. And friends, some of you have been carrying around baggage, condemnation baggage. And some of you have been carrying it around so long and for so many years now that you've come to the place where you almost feel that that is normal. That's not normal. It was normal. Before Christ, outside of Christ, condemnation is normal. Because we are outside of Christ, we are under condemnation. But for friends, but friends, for us, things are different. Things are different now. There is no condemnation. And for some reason, even in light of the gospel that we preach on a consistent basis, 
you find yourself unable to appropriate the comfort and the hope of the gospel in your day-to-day living. And so the gospel doesn't motivate you either. So guilt's not working. Condemnation's not working. It's not fueling your service for Christ. And the gospel's not either because the condemnation and guilt are in the way and it's weighing you down so heavily that that is not motivating you. Is that you tonight? Is that where you find yourself? Does the way that you live your Christian life accurately represent the facts of the gospel? Or does your life lead others to misunderstand the glory and the freedom that the gospel is meant to bring? Let me ask you a series of questions to help you with this. Question one. Do you relate to God as a person on probation so that at any moment with a wrong turn, God is likely to hurl you back into the jail of his disfavor? When you read Scripture, does it reveal the boundless love of the Savior or does it merely intensify your condemnation? In fact, do you find yourself then consistently avoiding the reading of God's Word because you know that it will just drive you into greater despair? Are you more aware of your sin than you are of God's grace given to you at the cross? Do you live thinking, believing, and feeling that God is disappointed with you rather than delighting in you? Zephaniah 3.17, God rejoices over you with singing. What about that scripture? Do you assume God's acceptance of you depends on your obedience? Is that what you assume? Do you lack joy? Friends, I have found that one of the first marks of legalism in my heart is the fact that I lack joy. And the reason why is because condemnation is the result of pondering my deficiency, while joy is the result of pondering His sufficiency. So we twisted it. And so we, we, we live in despair. So the question I'm asking you this evening is, what is controlling you? Friends, if this is you, do not buy the lie that wallowing around in your sin and in your despair is in, in, in your shame is somehow pleasing to God. It's not. It's not pleasing to God. Or that your repeated announcement of self-disdain and self-deprecation will somehow spark growth towards Humility or spark growth towards holiness and spiritual maturation. It will not. It, in fact, it's the opposite. God is glorified when we believe with all of our hearts that those who trust in Christ will never be condemned. But if you leave your propensity toward guilt and condemnation unchecked, you will inevitably... Seek to try to rectify this guilt by attempting to pay God back and for all that he's done for you. But when our sense of duty loses sight of God's grace and evolves into a drive to pay God back or to impress him with our service, we have lost the gospel. And we need to be careful of this subtle tendency. Duty in the Christian life must never be divorced 
from our delight in the very nature of the gospel. Even if we could successfully pay God back for all he has done for us or for any of it, to that degree, we would nullify grace and turn it into a business transaction. But friends, grace is free or it's not grace. Grace does not start a mortgage schedule of obedience payments. But the truth is, we can never pay God back. Not one penny's worth because every move we make in holiness is a move that God Himself supplies with His strength. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But... But praise God that our debt has been paid. Grace pays the debt that we owe. That's the point of the cross. It saves you from yourself and the oppressive tyranny of trying to pay God back. Instead, it beckons you to delight in the freeness of God's love and grace for you. So what drives you? What controls you? Is it, is it the free grace of the gospel? My non-Christian friends, if you're here tonight and, and you're listening to this message, I, I have to be honest with you. You are under condemnation. The, the, this message is not for you. Your debt has not been paid. And the reason why is because you are presently outside of Christ. And being outside of Christ means that you are still a slave to your sin. But friends, you must not go on this way. You, you, you must not go on this way. We, see, we Christians have been persuaded by this message. And so we then are persuaders. We have become persuaders. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making his appeal through us, we plead with you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Christian Christian, Christ died for you, among other reasons, so that you will not live under the oppressive tyranny of guilt and condemnation. Non-Christian, come to Christ. Christian, come away from yourself and reflect on the gospel that has saved you. Well, we're saved to God. We're saved from self. We're saved to God. And thankfully, the gospel does not only save us from ourselves, it saves us to God. Jesus giving his life freely for us and this free gift. And this constitutes the very nature of the gospel. Jesus giving himself for us. And this is what should motivate us to live for God. So Paul's contemplation here in this text of this free gift is so captivated his heart, so motivated him that he was able to freely give his life as an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Look back at the text. Look back at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, since we have concluded this, that Christ died for all, therefore all have died. So the motivation to live for God and others is not guilt or the debt that we owe God, but it is the love of Christ revealed in the gospel itself. That's, that's what he's saying. Texts like this are meant to ignite worship in our hearts. That, that, that's the point of these kinds of texts, to rouse affection and praise for God. Christ lived and died in your place as a substitute. And because of that, Christian, you are blameless. 
Do you understand that? Do, 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 you feel, do you feel that tonight? That you are blameless before a holy and almighty God? You are holy and blameless. You are, you are forgiven right now in the presence of God. And you don't have to earn this. You don't have to work for this. You don't have to toil for this. You are, you are redeemed. You are forgiven in Christ. And you are considered that way right now. Our, our brother preached a very helpful message to us this morning, reflecting on the fact that we are the children of God and we are viewed as children. And so that is our standing before God. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, God considers you blameless. And God intends for this news to have an ongoing effect in our Christian walk. That, that, that's the intent. It frees us from self so that we will have a new disposition, a new desire, namely to live for Him. We've been saved from self. We've been saved from self to God. And then we've been saved from self to God for other people. Now, I want to I camp here and close with this, this section for us because this... We hopefully are understanding the gospel. We hopefully are resting in the gospel. But then we have to ask our, our, ourselves the question, if Paul is saying here that the love of Christ is controlling us, and the context here is being ambassadors for Jesus Christ, and really getting outside of ourselves and declaring this message, then, then we, need to, we need to take an inventory of how we are doing presently on that issue as a church, as our church. Where, where are we here with this issue? See, the gospel saves us from self to God for for other people. That's that's what it does. The the controlling love of Christ of the gospel gets us outside of ourselves. He saves us among for for other reasons to to love other people. We are saved for that. We have been saved from our self-reflective bent. We are all bent towards reflecting on self, to examining self, to looking at self, to living in light of self, to constantly be analyzing self. We're, we're, we're just bent towards self. And we have been saved from self. It, the gospel shatters your hall of mirrors. See, it's like all of us have a hall. We live in a hall, and, and, and there's just mirrors all around us. And so when we're, when we're moving around in this hall of mirrors, what we see is ourself. Boom, 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 boom. Me, 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 me. And that's all we see is ourself, ourself, ourself. And this hall of mirrors around us. And what the gospel does, what does the gospel do? It comes in like a boulder, and it shatters those hall, those mirrors in that hall. And you begin to see other people. You begin to get outside of yourself. Others come into your line of sight. That's what the gospel does. The gospel removes, it breaks down those, those, halt, those mirrors, that, that self-reflection. And the love of Christ controls you to free you from self and to get you to love other people. So you say, I want that. that I want that. I want that, but, but how, how do I get that? Well, how do you get that? The place to start is, is by looking at the text itself. How do you get to the place where Christ's love controls you? Look at the text. Well, we have to ask the question, when does the, light, the love of Christ control us? Look at verse 14. It controls us when we begin to speak 
concluding thoughts about the gospel. That, that, isn't that what it says? Look, look at verse 14. It controls us when we begin to speak concluding thoughts of the gospel. The text says, since we have concluded this. Right? Concluded what? Concluded that Christ died for us. That's the gospel. Preach that message to yourself. What, what is the best sermon a man or a woman can preach? The best sermon a man or woman can preach is when he or she preaches the gospel to themselves. That's the best sermon. That is the best sermon for you. That is the sermon that you should start with on your morning drive to work. That is the message you should preach to yourself on the way home from work after your long and tiresome day. Moms, that is the message you should preach to yourself when you are pulling your hair out, taking care of your kids at home. That's the message that we should preach in our marriages. It's the gospel. We preach this message. It controls our marriages. It controls our parenting. It affects the way that we do life. It affects my relationship with my boss. It affects my relationship with my children. It gives me hope when my kids are going crazy and they're rebelling against me. It it gives me hope. This is the message that we preach to ourselves. We conclude, we have come to the conclusion that Christ died for me. Christ died for us. So we preach this message to ourselves. Now, if you're saying, I I just, okay, I know this, but I just can't seem to get this message to control me like this. How, How? Still, I need help. I need help. How can we move from the apprehension, the understanding of this text to, to I want this to really seriously affect my daily life? Well, we speak. The advice that I, that, that I see in the text is that we are speaking, concluding thoughts about the gospel. So we start there. So then we have to ask the question, what's the gospel, right? Because if we're going to speak concluding thoughts about the gospel, then we need to know what concluding thoughts we're going to speak about the gospel. Look at the verse, verse 14. Again, it says, For we have concluded this, that Christ died for all, therefore all died. Therefore, all died. So the conclusion is that you have died. But the purpose is not only that you would die, but that you would live differently. Do you see this in the text? Look at the next verse. And he died for all so that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So the purpose for which you have died is so that you will no longer live For yourself, but you will live for God. You die to live differently. That's one of the purposes. You die to live a different life. And that's not merely that, it's not merely self that's dying, but it's absorption with self that is dying. It's, It's our obsession with self. It's being consumed with self that's dying. Friends, at the end of the day, it is you that keeps you from loving other people. You are consumed again and again with self. And there's this hall of mirrors, as we have said, around us. And we need that boulder of the gospel to come rolling through there and destroy that. That is why the gospel is so important. It gets you outside of yourself so that you don't have to care for you anymore. That, that's what the gospel does. Oh, just if you could just hear the sweetness, the beauty, the power of the, the, the awesome love of God in this text. Listen to this verse. Just hear the love of God for you. 
Oh, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would number more than the sands on the beach. How precious to me are your thoughts of me, O God. Why must you care for you when God is caring for you? What, what more can you do for yourself? I, you, you must not think for you. He has thought for you in endless ways. Let me go on. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? He has given you his son. What further proof do we need that he is going to provide all of our needs? So we should get outside of ourselves. Christian, you don't have any more problems. Fundamentally, you don't have any more problems. You, you, you're not going to hell. You are not under condemnation. No more problems really ultimately exist for you. And now because of that reality... Your greatest problem has been satisfied, it has been put away, and now you are free to absorb yourself in the major problem that most of the people in the world still have, which is that they are presently under condemnation. The world, your family, your co-workers and neighbors, this is what the gospel allows us to do. Friends, do not be mistaken. We are not needy beggars we are wealthy givers givers of the gospel we present we are ambassadors for christ we are proclaiming a message of liberation to people we are on a mission way bigger than ourselves and that's what the gospel is doing for us it's getting us outside of ourselves so we begin to see others rather than ourselves we begin to think for someone other than ourselves, we begin to pray for someone other than ourselves. We begin to want things for people other than ourselves. And moreover, more than all of these things, we begin to look at people and, and we not only see them in their in their plight, in their in their in their self destruction, but we see them differently than we used to see them. Look at verse sixteen. Look at verse 16. The word therefore is used, which is alerting us to something. It is alerting us to a conclusion. Paul is drawing a conclusion. He is saying, so then, or therefore, from now on, we acknowledge no one from an outward or human point of view. So when you are saved from self to God, something happens. So what he is saying is that our vision has changed. We don't regard anyone anymore with the categories of male and female, rich or poor, pretty and ugly, black and white. Those categories are finished. We are not looking at those categories. He is saying that there's only going to be one driving category now, and it's this, inside of Christ or outside of Christ. That's the driving category. Uh, category. It's not male and female. It's not pretty or ugly. It's not rich or poor. It's not black and white. It's because this is the only lens that matters anymore, inside of Christ or outside of Christ. So this fleshly sort of outlook is no longer. Look at the text. It says we used to regard Christ this way, right? Isn't that what it says? Yeah, we used to regard him as a mere man. 
But, but see, now we regard him as that no longer. He is the Son of God. We regard him as the God-man. We regard him as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. We see him now differently. And if you get him wrong, your life is in shambles. And if other people get him wrong, their life is in shambles. So we are no longer operating from the flesh. We are no longer operating under the categories of this human point of view. So here's the principle. People of God, now that we are in Christ, every one of our relationships are to be ordered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. All of them. Not primarily sports. Not primarily crafts and hobbies. Not primarily boating. Not primarily uh, um, just spending time with each other. Not cooking. Not sewing. Whatever it is that you like or that you are involved with. Those things are always a means to a greater end. They're a means to a greater end. They're always a means to a greater end. Plain and simple. You exist for others. So the point Paul is making is that your relationships are not primarily about you. They're they're about others. You are free to be about others because Christ is for you. That's amazing to me, the comfort of that. Christ has freed me from self so that I can freely give myself to others. That's the motivation. So you don't need to be about you anymore. If you are in this world for any other reason, let, let me say that again. If you are in this world for any other reason than to be a missionary for Jesus Christ, then you are here for sinful and selfish reasons. You're here for sinful and selfish reasons, and the gospel saves you from that selfishness. It frees you to see other people and not your hall of mirrors. If you're going to order your relationships around Jesus Christ, friends, you cannot have shallow, superficial, and stereotypical relationships with people. If you are going to order your relationships around Jesus Christ, you cannot have shallow, superficial or stereotypical relationships with others. The gospel is meant to be so thrilling, so riveting, so amazing that it gets you outside of yourself for the love of others. Dear family of God, as I was thinking about this message, this thought came to me is that we have become so fat. We just eat and eat and eat spiritual food. We come here Sundays and we eat. We come here Wednesdays and we eat. And we come here Sunday again and we eat. We not only eat on Sunday, we eat twice a day on Sunday, three times a day if you count the, the, Sunday, the Sunday school time. And so we eat and we eat and we eat and we stuff ourselves with theology and food and food and food. And we get so stuffed in that food. And then what do we do? We, we go back to our comfortable homes, our comfortable families. And we live in isolation from the mission that God has called us to. Or we just talk about it. We'll come and we'll talk about it. Or we'll have a sermon like this and we talk about this mission that God has given to us. But then ultimately, is the love of Christ in the gospel compelling us to something? See, the gospel has freed us from self to God for others. 
And this church, Heritage Baptist Church, we have been freed from self. We're free from self. Whether we are living that way or not, we are free from self. We are free not to be a selfish church. We, we have been set free not to be selfish. We are uh, a missionary church with a missionary people that do missionary things for the glory of a missionary God. That's who we are. That's who we are called to be. And we are called to be that specifically for Owensboro. That, that, that's our calling. If, if your tendency is not to associate with a lost and a broken and dying world, then you need to re-examine what it means for you to be committed to Jesus Christ. More importantly, you need to re-examine what it means for you to be forgiven. The, the prostitute laying at the feet of Jesus, wiping his feet with her hair, and Jesus says to her, you love much because you've been forgiven much. So we need to reflect on the gospel. Now, let me just give you a couple of practical steps for how to get involved in the lives of non-Christians. Let me give you some practical advice for how to develop a spirituality that is not isolated from unbelievers, but is in participation with unbelievers. Here, here's some ways to start. Number one, be interested. Just be interested in people. Ask people questions. People love to talk about themselves. They do. And if you will give them an ear to talk about themselves, they, are, they will be quite happy to go on talking about themselves. Ask them. Ask them loads of questions. It's, it's precisely because they are so self-absorbed that they're happy to do so. So let them talk. And maybe in a moment of generosity, they might ask you a question back. And in that moment, seize it for Christ. Make an identification with Christ on the front end. And then back that up with a loving relationship on the back end. Make an identification with Christ. Back that up with your love for them relationally on the back end. So be interested. Number two, be inclusive. Don't go places by yourself. Don't drive by yourself. Don't eat by yourself. Don't play by yourself. Don't, don't do anything alone as much as possible. Do things with unbelievers. Invite them. Get them into your life. This, this, doing this requires intentionality. We, we invite people to do things with us. We ask them. This, we, we have to make this a habit. So have someone join your family on a weekly basis. Say, Sunday afternoon, after church, you always bring somebody over to your house and you feed them. Have them over every Sunday. Build a relational context to share Christ. Be, in, be inclusive. Number three, be intentional. You have to be intentional with your life. Uh, steering conversations into deeper issues requires intentionality. Uh, this, this is not going to happen naturally. Uh, you have to learn to think hyper-intentionally. Right? You have to get up in the morning and say, look, I'm going to do something here and I'm going to make a plan. Otherwise, it won't happen. So have a plan to engage people in meaningful conversation. Think of a conversation that you want to start in the office. You want to get a conversation going and help them. Move the conversation. Take leadership over the conversation. We're, we're so passive. We just sit and sometimes, well, the conversation goes here. You know, we're talking about this. And, and then and we, and it just, ideas are bounced around. But we're never intentional. We don't drive the, con the, the conversation somewhere. 
So learn to drive the conversation. Be intentional. So there are some quick things. Be interested. Be inclusive. Be intentional. And then let me close this way. Let me close this way. Every one of us who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord, we have signed up for something way bigger than we thought. Way bigger than we ever dreamed. And I mean business professionals, single moms, homemakers, and students. To belong to Jesus is to embrace his missionary heart. Your heart was made for this. Your heart was made to embrace the global dimension of missional living. That's what your heart was made for. So if you don't have a heart for the city of Owensboro, if you don't have a global heart, if you're not getting your arms around the lost and the dying in Owensboro, then there will be a mild to possibly serious sickness in your soul. Because you were created for that. Your soul was made to do this. And if it's not, it's like anything else. It will get sick. It will get sick. And some of us are sick. We are sick. We have become ill. And what we need is the gospel, the love, the controlling factor of the gospel, the grace of the gospel, the freeness of that grace to to get us outside of that selfishness. The antidote is not guilt and condemnation. It's the gospel. That's what we need. And we have a sickness. So many people do not know what's wrong with their hearts. They, they wonder. They say, look, I, I, I feel this. I know I need to be. I want to go out. I want to pursue Christ. I want to, I want to be involved in evangelism and all these things. But I can't figure out what's wrong with me. I just can't seem to get motivated. And so they ask, what's wrong with my soul? And the problem is that their soul has shrunk to the level of their personal concerns. The love of Christ that controls us will show itself in deeds. And I mean flesh and blood deeds. I mean the, the kind of deeds that get off your rear end and go to the hospital deeds. To, 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 get, off, uh, to get out of ourselves, to, to get in there and put the pot on the stove and make, it, and make a dinner for somebody. Just deeds, deeds, works that, that we want to love people. I mean calling somebody up and saying, look, I'll be the babysitter. I'll do that. Getting outside of ourselves, love, 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 controlling love, love that compels us to get our arms around Owensboro with God. So, now, what about, you, what about your heart? Has it shrunk to the level of your personal concerns? Think about it, dropping the kids at school, going to the ball game, taking care of the household chores, spending time with the family, being a good husband, honoring your duties as a member of this local church. Great things to do. Some of you may be thinking, well, that's really easy for you to say, John. And, you, you, you know, you don't have a wife and kids and all these kids to take care of at home and you're single. And, but that, that's true. But may I caution us. See, some of the busiest people in the world with home and domestic responsibilities are also some of the most on fire for missions. So let, let, let's, your, your first responsibility is family. It is to shepherd and take care of, of your kids, to lead them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, to be the husband that God has called you to be, to be the wife and the mother that God has called you p- to be. But do not stop there. Do not assume that since that is, is, is pressing upon you, 
that God may not have other things for you to get involved in. So, dear people, we have been called for more. We have been called to embrace God's missionary purpose for our lives. And we must get serious about this calling. We must, we, we, we must pursue this as a church. We want to see this church grow because the lost in our city are being rescued from the life-liberating message that we preach. So this church, this, these pews are filled, and they're filled not because people are, are primarily moving here, not primarily because they are transferring here, but they are being filled because we are going out We are going out and we are preaching this life-liberating message. And this life-liberating message is taking root in their heart and they are being converted. And so we bring them in to the family of God. We go out, we preach the gospel, then we bring them in. But this will not happen until we are controlled by the love of Christ. Revealed in the gospel. And when we begin to understand the gospel we will begin to see the love of Christ and be controlled by it. But until then, perhaps we are forced to conclude that we have not yet understood the gospel to the extent that it controls us, that it coerces us, that it impels us, that it compels us to get outside of ourselves For the sake of others. For the love of Christ controls us. Since we have concluded this, that Christ died for all. Therefore, all have died. You have died to your old self. You are free in Christ. The gospel saves us from self to God and for other people. May God help us to be controlled by that message. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that we praise you that we are we are free from self. We thank you that we are free from the slavery that we have to ourselves, that we had to ourselves, and that you have called us into newness of life in Christ Jesus. Lord, we praise you for that tonight. We ask that you would help us to be controlled by the love of Christ, to be compelled by that love. And so we ask you to do this. Do this for your glory and for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.